0: Hi, welcome to the Modern OT Podcast.
1: This is the podcast where we
0: talk about defining occupational therapy, insights from OTs in the profession, and highlighting how students advocate occupational therapy while in school. I am Sirianni. And I am Laura. And our goal in this podcast is to show the modern
1: definition of OT. So let's dive into today's episode.
2: Hi, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Yeah, so um, just a few little basics about me. Um, I graduated from Samuel Merritt University in 2012 with my master's of OT, and that's a school in Oakland, California. And then I moved back to the Seattle area, and I actually mostly worked in pediatrics. That was um, my initial area of interest. And so but at the same time I have also had rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years. And so um I basically noticed from the occupational therapy perspective over the years that there were quite a few gaps in the care for people with with inflammatory forms of arthritis which are the forms that cause fatigue and that are autoimmune, you know, systemic diseases not just arth- like wear and tear arthritis like osteo. So um, so I, um, decided to, and it's a longer story, but I'm trying to condense it. I pivoted from pediatrics, um, traditional setting to, I would say like a non-traditional setting I'm in now it's entrepreneurial and it's an online education based company where I help. Yeah. My, my tagline is educate, empower, and inspire people with, arth- with arthritis. I keep it generic, like arthritis, but it's really is focused towards people with rheumatoid arthritis. And, um, and it's. It's been really wonderful. I mean, I already planned it to be on online, just so I could access the most people, but it's ended up being even more kind of beneficial now with the pandemic because so many people are like wanting online resources and support right now. So yeah, that's my condensed, that's as condensed as I can get. Oh, and I also teach as an adjunct at a local OT assistant program and I live in the Seattle area in the West Coast.
1: Awesome. That was a great sum up, I feel like, especially since I was just kind of like, was looking at your page and everything. I thought you do really, really amazing things with rheumatoid arthritis. And for me, it resonated with me personally, because um, I was an aide for like a period of time. And there was this one patient I got so close with, and she had RA plus gout. And she had a hard, hard time. So like when you were explaining all these things and doing all like the life hacks and whatnot, like I was doing those things with her as an aide. So that was just really, really, like, kind of just, like, crazy to think about and how it's just um, seeing other people go through that as well and teach other people um, how to heal and process all that. I think it was, like, it's, like, an amazing thing that you're doing, really. Oh,
2: thank you. Yeah, and, like, yeah, to give a little bit more detail, so um, what I noticed is that, there are a a lot more resources for certain kinds of areas within OT than others. So for example, when I worked in pediatrics, there are like 9,000 websites for like fine motor worksheets and, you know, um, school-based OT, and there's still always a need for more resources. And it's wonderful that there's so many for, for school-based OTs and for outpatient pediatric OTs, you know, like craft activities and social emotional learning. I went to so many amazing trainings but there was a certain point where I was like, I was at the same time volunteering with the Arthritis Foundation. And I was also part of a lot of patient groups, like organic patient groups on Facebook. And I was just seeing that every single day, constantly, patients were asking the most basic questions that were 100,000% relevant to the OT scope. They were like, how do I scoop my kidney litter without having my hands hurt? kitchen they were they and they were never given the tools there was no system in place like there is like for you know let's say a child gets diagnosed with autism and like that is not an easy diagnosis by any means but there's really they get funneled into a system right they get they get a psychologist they get a ideally and at least in in the seattle area there's a lot of autism awareness and so these kids they would get ot they would get pt they would get speech they would get and whereas you get diagnosed with an inflammatory form of arthritis, which is a serious autoimmune lifelong disease that affects every aspect of your life, and there is no OT that is integrated as part of the standard of care, and there's no patient education. And it really hit me when I was pregnant in 2013, and I developed gestational diabetes, which Side note, that's also autoimmune, and they say that, you know, autoimmune diseases don't like to travel alone, meaning if you have one, you're more likely to have another, and so, but when I got diagnosed with um, gestational diabetes, it was like, I was immediately provided tons of education and support, two appointments a week, and I'm like, why are OTs not involved, in Involved in this care patients are actually ending up so I'm glad that you Laura had an experience where you actually provided this to patients and it's not that like no patients are getting it but mm-hmm. very few and I don't have statistics on that but I know like just from my informal surveying of people when I followed up with them and asked like so when they've asked about these really basic life hacks like things a first-year student would learn about joint protection and stuff like that um, they when I followed up and said have you ever gotten OT they either say Yes, I got OT. It was like one or two days and I got like a hand splint, like from a hand therapist, which is, that's fabulous, but that's like a small sliver of our scope there. It was rare for me to encounter people either in person at Arthritis Foundation events or um, online who would say, yeah, I had an OT that really walked me through like an occupation-based top-down approach, walk through the day in my life. What can I, how can I have, you know, be comfortable with sexual intimacy? How can I be comfortable taking care of my children? How can I be comfortable or reduce my pain and fatigue? So, um, so for me, it was like, I, I pivoted towards this non-traditional setting. I'm calling it non-traditional because I'm not working like directly one-on-one with people as an occupational therapist right now. I'm doing group education, um, which, you anyway, know, that's kind of gets into the weeds of things. But um, I was like, you know, I just can't, I loved working in pediatrics. I didn't burn out or anything, but I was like, I can't keep noticing this giant gap. It's like a problem that really, and it has a solution. Like OT is the solution. So yeah, I'm like, I want competition right now. Like I want there to be tons of OTs out there who are creating education programs and who are, you know, then working also in traditional settings, you know, getting referrals from rheumatologists. Rheumatologists are the medical doctors that provide care to people with all sorts of autoimmune diseases, whether it's lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, all these different kinds of diseases that again, patients are just left in the dark. Like they are, there is, we are so underutilized. So please, if you're listening to this, if you're a practitioner and you're like, maybe needing some more income right now, you could do this so easily through telehealth. And it's so rewarding because the patients usually have never gotten this information before. Like I had two, so right now I'm running a, a class, an online course with 12 patients. And I'm calling them patients, even though they're not my OT patient, um, which I can explain more later why that is. But um, two of them have had RA for over 10 years. And they're like, I, some, they said, you know, some of this I learned on, along the way, like on my own. But they're like, this is still so valuable. And I, I kid you not, like, I am not giving them anything rocket science. It is like OT 101 you know, so, and the mental health, sorry, I want to get, I'm going to get on my soapbox, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. mental health is huge. You cannot just think of rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory arthritis as just affecting the joints, the fatigue and the way it affects your daily life is, has such a profound effect on your mental health. I mean, and people with um, all forms of arthritis, whether it's osteoarthritis or the other less prevalent forms have a much higher risk of anxiety and depression than the general population. And it's again, no one's asking them about it. Um, so you know, I made a big point to tell my rheumatologist when I first started seeing a psychologist because I was like, you know, she's been really helpful, and I didn't. I went to a psychologist to help me with postpartum depression and anxiety, and but it ended up that we talked way more about the chronic illness because that was what was affecting me as a parent. Like I was, I was looking at my baby in the crib and not wanting to pick him up because it hurt my hands. And, like that's such a psychological, but I wanted to pick him up. It's such a psychologically um, uncomfortable and, and phenomenon, right? To feel like I want to be the mom that I want to be, but I can't because of my illness. And, um, and so, you know, I've ended up talking with her a lot more about the chronic illness aspect, and that's been huge. But I think OTs can provide some of that support as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's actually one question I was going to ask you too about like, um, I know your son's a little bit older now yeah. and, uh, how do you be more like present with him? Cause I know you said that I was reading your article. You said that, um, that's the most important thing is for you to just be present with your son. They don't want to like hear about all these things. They just want you to be there with them. Yeah. So what's like, like your I don't know daily, weekly, whatever routine you do to kind of just be more present with your son as you go through your crime. Yeah.
2: Well, um, I have to put a really large plug in for, um, a approach called acceptance and commitment therapy which is what i've learned as a patient and i've gone on to take trainings in it and um so i first learned about it from the patient from the patient side when my therapist led me through it and then i have now learned as a provider um and aota actually had their first training on acceptance and commitment therapy last month so it's available for purchase I mean, and it's extremely congruent with ot but it's a it's a a mindfulness and behavior based approach where you learn. So the mindfulness part is accept, is accepting and being present in the moment. But then the commitment part is taking action towards what's meaningful in your life, despite how discomfort, how, how much discomfort you might be feeling. So it's a really, really great complement to something like CBT, or I would honestly just say alternative in some ways to CBT because CBT cognitive behavior therapy is very well known within OT and it's used a lot. but there is a point when you live with chronic pain or chronic illness where you're not having a distorted thought. It's not distorted to say that this is never going to get better. It's potentially never going to get better. Mm-hmm. So the idea isn't to then like go through a worksheet and be like, here's my thoughts and here's my feelings and here's my behavior response because the thoughts are correct. And you know, so the, it's like, you don't need to, it's not catastrophizing. It's literally truthful so the acceptance and commitment therapy says it doesn't matter what the thought is whether the thought is quote like no thoughts are good or bad or true or false the thoughts are just thoughts they're literally just phenomena in your head so you learn how to notice them as a thought and then move on to actually having meaningful action in your life so in this case it would be like you asked specifically i'm going to come back to your question don't worry (laughs) you asked about parenting so how do I be present as a parent? In the past, my anxiety used to be really focused on the future. So I've spent so long thinking about like, for example, when my son was little, I assumed I was going to have another child. And I was like, how am I going to do this again? How am I going to do this again? That was like a repetitive thought in my mind. Like, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to do this again. Or there's, this is like an equation that doesn't fit. Like I literally, at one point with my husband, we're like, we're going to have to have like live if we have another baby, we need like live-in assistance, like an au pair or something. And obviously I'm very privileged to even be able to like fathom that. But we would actually wouldn't be able to in our current home because you have to have like a separate bathroom for them. But anyway, point being, um, it was like I just spent so much time thinking about that. And then we ended up actually not having another baby. So it's like all that worry was not even productive anyway. It didn't, it didn't end up leading towards anything. So acceptance is really about what is going on right now in this exact moment. Like I think I spent a lot of time when my son was really little worrying about the next stage. And it's really common for parents to do that, right? Whether you have a chronic illness or not, the baby just starts sitting up, you immediately start worrying about walking and crawling. What am I going to do when he's walking? Oh my gosh, now I'm going to need a baby proof. Oh, when he's walking, what are we going to do when he starts doing this or that? You know, it's like the next, oh, when they're using a bottle, when are they going to use a sippy cup? Which one am I going to choose? I'm overwhelmed. So these are all these like, thoughts that kind of keep spiraling outwards to the future. So for me, acceptance and commitment therapy, it's also known as ACT because the word acceptance can be um, misleading because it's not, acceptance in this case does not mean resignation as it doesn't mean like things will never get better or like, this is just my fate. It just means literally being able to tolerate or sit with what is literally happening right now, whether or not it gets better, just sitting with it and then, being able to reorient yourself towards, towards action, meaningful action in the moment. So as a parent, I say, okay, you know, I'm, the pandemic was a great example too that we're all going through. What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? I'm sure for you guys as students, what's gonna happen next quarter, next semester? What about my field work? What, it's all about the, spiraling about the future. And so with my son, yeah, is he gonna be able to go back to school? I don't know, you know, but the, pre- the act makes me reorient towards literally what, okay, what about today? You know, what can I do today? And that's really helpful for chronic illness as well, because again, um, chronic illness, chronic illnesses like autoimmune diseases are characterized by a lot of like fluctuations over time. So there's an uncertainty element there where you're like, well, like, like when I was an OT student, my disease was fairly well controlled. And so I've had a lot of prospective students ask me with RA, actually I'm getting a lot of people who want to become OTs who are RA, who have RA, I'm like, this is so great. Um, and they're, and they'll say things like, you know, how did you, did you have accommodations, like disability accommodations? And I was like, I w- didn't have to because my medication was working. But if I went back to school today, I would. So it's like, it fluctuates so much over your life that you can get lost in these future worries. Like, oh, what about this? What if that, you know, does that make sense? That was a long answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely makes a hundred percent sense. And I think that just like, that's really great. Actually. I didn't even know about that How how you are in contact with so many OTs who want to be, um, not OTs people who have RA who want to be OTs as I meant to say. There's that's been so two cool. in the
2: last week that have just e- emailed me. I, yeah. And there's, I, I am in touch with, I think there's six or seven of us that are practicing OTs with RA. Um, and two of them are researcher, either research or work in the arthritis space. Actually there's another podcast called the live. Yes podcast from the Arthritis Foundation and Rebecca Gillette is an OT with RA who works for the Arthritis Foundation and she co-hosts that podcast with another patient. But she is, So she is um, wonderful and then there's another, there's a few of us, there's a few of us that are already OTs but yeah it's awesome to see some more um, coming down the pipeline.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: and um, just to, like backtrack a bit just in case yeah. anyone doesn't know what RA is, can you oh, explain yes. like your perspective of it from like a patient and provider Um, yeah
2: yeah yeah so ra has um you have to first think about that it as it has visible symptoms and invisible ones so the visible symptoms are oh sorry let me set back for a second actually so the arthritis the word means joint inflammation it's arthros joint is inflammation so um it arthritis is a non-specific term in the sense it's kind of like saying a stomach ache or like cancer. It's like there could be lots of different kinds of cancer. You have to know which kind is it. So um, with arthritis, you need to know the cause. And it's funny because a lot of times OTs will say things like, we don't treat diagnosis, we treat the functional effect. But you actually, you have to know the diagnosis because that in this case, I would say you need the diagnosis is important because you might have five different people with joint pain. And one of them is from osteoarthritis which is a degenerative wear and tear form of arthritis one's rheumatoid which is a full body systemic attack on your immune system and then someone else's joint pain is from like an injury their prognosis of those three are totally different like the person with the injury is going to get better most likely and then the person with osteo it is not going to get better the person with rheumatoid it may get better with medication or it may not because the inflammation is caused by the immune system so to backtrack the immune system in this case attacks your whole body so that's what's autoimmune disease but it happens to really want to attack the synovial lining of your small joints so those are the that's the lining that makes your joints move so things like um your fingers and your toes so the, so the distal joints are the most affected for rheumatoid and i honestly think like it's just it it is something that I just am really passionate about sharing the awareness of. It's not just about joint pain. And if you heard my interview on OT for Life with Sarah, it's not just joint pain because, okay, that's what's happening in the joints. But again, it affects your heart, your lungs, your brain, and the medications you go on for it are extremely heavy duty medications that suppress your immune system. So, um, And they work on the joints, but they have side effects for most people. So, Um, The other things that you have to look at with rheumatoid are, again, the mental health and the fatigue. Fatigue is the number two symptom that bothers patients after pain. So to think about it like MS, where you have a huge fatigue and energy conservation element. And if you just think of it, if you hear the word arthritis and just think joint pain and you just give them a hand splint or you just, you know, work with them on like a few ADL life hacks, you're going to miss the big picture. They need to learn how to cope with fatigue and energy conservation. They need to learn about the role of like exercise. So it's a little bit unintuitive, but, um, exercise is actually super evidence-based for rheumatoid arthritis and the other inflammatory forms. Um, Um, because it, the, the disease itself can lead to something called rheumatoid cachexia. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's where your muscles start wasting. And that's actually one of the causes of weight loss with it. So one of my first symptoms was unintended weight loss. And it was brand, I was like, I went from being like, 130 pounds captain of the college soccer team to like wasting away. I was like 105 pounds. I wasn't trying to lose. I was like, what is happening? Like anyway, so, um, um, so you, you want to maintain a little bit of that muscle mass so that you can support the joints as well. So you have to look at the big picture. That's the point The holistic lens and you know, mind, body, the biopsychosocial framework. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, that makes a hundred percent sense because, I remember, um, even with like the person that I knew who had RA, right, like we, we did get for splints, but it was, it was only like, it only did so much. So as you explained it, that's, that's really important to note for anyone who doesn't know what it is or for people who do have it and just want to kind of like hear it from another point, point of view so that they're not alone. I think that's a really great way to put it. And, um, oh, I had something in my mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I went in lots of directions. So, yeah. Choose no, but- a deal of those <laughs> So, yeah, I just, I think that's like a really good point of view though, just in general, just because like, I can just personally relate to that just because I did that as like an aid because I was an the aid in a the hand therapy setting. So it's like we were giving splints to these people who had like ar- arthritis or osteoarthritis, like all these different types of things. So I think that's really, really that you just brought all of that stuff up. And um, I remember you, well, how did that actually mean to you? As being like an OT because you said before that you were a peds OT. Yeah. How did that affect you um, in that type of like setting?
2: Yeah and I think I think in the peds setting it can be really different depending on how your clinic is structured. So I worked in one outpatient clinic that had like a sensory gym with like swings and stuff and then the the school base was much more um, fine motor and social emotional and so um, in terms of my body, it was a lot easier to work on the school than the clinic because the clinic was more hands-on and the sessions were longer. So again, we're talking about the two things I think about are fatigue and joint pain. So for mm-hmm. me in this clinic, my sessions were 55 minutes back to back. In the school, I happened to live and work in a district that has a caseload of 35 kids total per week. And so in most of those kids are like 30 minutes. So you're like, okay, do the math there. That's like three or four kids a day for 30 minutes each, as opposed to that would be half of my 33, four kids would be half of my day in the clinic. And it would be an hour practically each with no like break, not very many breaks. I would have like a lunch break. But so from the energy side, um, I personally found the clinic harder than the schools, but some schools have really big caseloads like 80, 90. So, um, but if you're assigned to high schoolers too. Um, you might get less of that hands-on. You know, with the preschoolers and little ones, you kind of have to do more hands-on. But my most, my um, thing I was most interested in. I kind of joke that all my clinical interests start with the letter A because I was really interested in autism, ADHD, anxiety, and arthritis. <laughs> so um, I was really interested in the kids who needed that support for social, emotional, and um, so I and behavior. So I did a lot with kids um, like working one-on-one on on those social emotional skills and then pushing into the classroom to support them like in the moment. And I did a lot of like lunch groups, like inclusive lunch groups with kids. Like so a few kids with autism and then a few kids that were the typically developing peers and kind of scaffolded for them in those sessions. And that was really fun. So I, I loved that. And this, I loved the school environment and I I also loved the clinic. It just, I got too exhausted to be honest, especially as like a new mom. Um, it was just, it was really hard for me. Um, I will say that you could do accommodations in a clinic setting. Like you could say, okay, you could work with your employer to schedule things out. I know people who've done like, had, instead of having kids back to back on the hour, they could do like an hour, two back to back an hour, and then a half hour break, two back to back an hour, half hour break, or 15 minute break before between each kid with like an hour lunch. So there's a lot in like a clinic setting that's like a small private clinic that you can kind of work around some of the energy conservation stuff. I think in like a hospital might be harder, right? If you work as far as like, you know, you're like OT number 20 in a hospital and there's like tons of other people, like they might not be able to give you your own special schedule. But I was lucky because it was a very small, you know, six person clinic. They were very, they were kind of like, we just need you to see X number of kids per week. So if you want to stay here longer and have bigger breaks, you absolutely can. So that worked out in the clinic um the, oh sorry do you need me to record that again what was I just saying could you hear my son or no
1: no I didn't hear him at all
2: no. oh you didn't hear him oh good okay sorry That's good. I just, he just like turns
1: the side and was like okay yeah. over There.
2: he just <laughs> wandered in sorry he's supposed to stay no upstairs. it's totally okay um oh that
1: well I forget what I was saying <laughs> You were just talking about how it's like more accommodating um.
2: Oh yeah small a small yeah a small um, private clinic it can be more accommodating but at other times they it, that's just my experience sometimes they can't So I think if you're somebody who is like a student looking at different settings you know classically people consider like the mental health setting as the least physically demanding the least physically hands-on you know um but also i found school-based to be less hands-on as well um because you're not having to again if you're if you're in a setting that in in the outpatient clinic where you're doing like physical like the, the thing that was hard for me was the swings like getting those clips on and off the swings and then just doing a lot more physical assisting with children um although the clinic again they were really nice and i actually ended up my like, favorite age to work with was like third through sixth grade. Like, I didn't like working as much with the teeny tinies. And, and so they, and a lot of other people love working with the little kids. So it worked out well. They gave me a lot of the older kids that again, were more higher, um, higher or let lower physical needs for me to like, ha- have hands on more like, okay, we're going to talk about the zones of regulation and like talk about social emotional skills and then fine motor and executive functioning and handwriting and all that stuff. So. Yeah, those were the settings. But when I was a student, I did work in, um, I did my field works in um, skilled nursing and uh, spinal cord injury rehab. So those were totally different. And the spinal cord was very, 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 very hands on. But at that time, I was, my disease was very well controlled with medications. So I I did everything
1: normally. So um, right now with your disease, I know you said that you used to like work in like PEDS and used to have all that experience as well. Did you transition more online just because? because you had like more flare-ups or just was it easier for you um, to do that? Um, (laughs) It's hard to make a coherent story out of it,
2: but um, I actually initially took a, a medical leave from the school's job because I had three acute health issues layer on each other over the period of like eight months. And it was extremely hard on top of my rheumatoid arthritis. So I had something called a palatal cyst, which is a tailbone cyst and they're notorious for having slow healing because it's not a very well vascularized area so I had delayed wound healing and I was going to the wound clinic twice a week and then in the middle of that I got um, in a freak car accident that was not my fault for the record (laughs) I'm an excellent driver driver and um, it was I had really bad whiplash and a concussion and I was still working after that I literally don't know how anyway I think back sometimes I'm like what but I, but it was it was therapeutic to work, right? But I had some concussion problems. <laughs> but I kept my children safe. I did a good job, apparently, got good reviews on my work somehow. Um, and then I, and then, but the kicker was that then I had, um, I got it just a regular GI virus, you know, the things that go around. People throw up, but it turned into something called gastroparesis, which is means paralyzed GI system. And so I experienced that same kind of a period of weight loss that i did unintended weight loss and wasting away that i did when i first got um rheumatoid arthritis but in this case it was due to the the my body's response to this virus and i i then it really affected my energy as well as being in pain i was like i um i mean you can i i couldn't digest i couldn't eat very much and i then therefore had no energy and so i went on medical leave um, And then I went, uh, sorry, I went partly medical leave and I worked like one and a half days a week. And then I went on full leave the next year. And I just, I had, I kind of had this moment of like, okay. Um, and I explained this on Sarah's podcast too, the um, OT for life, but you know, I consider this Japanese concept of ikagi or ikagai where it's like, what is the, what are you good at? what do you like to do what does the world need and what can you get paid for and so when it's like i knew that i liked and i knew all those four quadrants were hit by pediatrics but the world didn't necessarily need me in particular to do the kind of work i was doing like i i loved it and i felt like i was doing a good job but I kept seeing in the meanwhile all this these needs for the patients with rheumatoid arthritis and I was like what can I uniquely contribute to our profession and to the world like that no one else is doing so I don't really remember what that like literally like it, it wasn't like a come to jesus moment it just kind of was slowly over time you know but it did relate to like my mortality and the fact that this the accident I was in was caused by this electrical company that set their work up improperly and it was really truly a potentially fatal accident like the the um, police on the scene were like, we don't understand how you walked away. Like I was in a Honda CRV. So I feel like that car like saved my life, but it was, it was a long story short, telephone pole got dragged into my car at like 35 miles an hour. And it was effectively like I had on collision at 35 miles an hour. And so it was like, and it was at my face. Sorry. I've gone through therapy for this. It was like really scary. (laughs) Um, And um, it was like those, movie previews of like a tornado movie where like the you know you see the cow come at your face it was because I, I remember it even though i had a concussion i remember it exactly so i just sometimes when i see telephone poles i am kind of have this flashback of like a telephone pole coming at my face um i thought it was a tree i was like a tree's there all the thought i'd have was tree like and it was just, it was so fast but um it was kind of like okay like i don't know how much time i had left i have left on earth right i already knew that because of my rheumatoid arthritis because RA um, is associated with a lower lifespan than a typical person, but it's like, it really was like, okay. Um, like I know I have like slightly less of a lifespan, but like my grandparents all lived to like their nineties. So I'm like, okay, I'll live till I'm like 85, if you know. But now I'm like, well, it may, I mean, nobody knows. So um, it was really this idea of like, okay, where is my energy best spent? And yes, in terms of working online, I really wanted a more flexible schedule and my son was starting kindergarten and you'd think work, everyone says working in the schools is so great for work-life balance. If you're a mom and you have kids and, um, the thing, and I don't want to push anyone off of going to the schools if that's what they want to do. But I would say that the small caveat to that is that if you're assigned to multiple schools, your schools might not have the same schedule as your child. So like I could be, have to do an IAP meeting at a high school at 7am. And then my son's school doesn't start till 8 50. And then I also have an IEP meeting at four for the elementary school because it's after school for that school to get that gets out at three thirty. So it's like the childcare part started getting stressful, and so um, it was actually like I really wanted full control over my schedule. So it, that all of those congealed together to where I then um, formed you know arthritis life, which I thought initially was going to be a talk show. I almost named it the arthritis life talk show. So I'm so glad I didn't because um, I mean even though I love the idea of a talk show it's become much more of like an educational enterprise if you will so yeah here we are today <laughs> summarizing <laughs> So oh, yeah I think that's really awesome too and I remember
1: you said before too you're gonna try like transition into like a podcast and things like that yes that's really exciting I'm really excited for you honestly because I think that's really awesome to get into like the podcasting world you know and um yeah, so I just think it's really, really great everything you're doing so far and just that whole journey you just explained. I mean, that's like a really, really tough situation to go through between already what you have to deal with. So I think that's really, really awesome, just how you're advocating for everything. And um, actually, to focus more so on, like, like OT students. Yeah, yeah. How, have, how has, like, um, your experience in OT school, how has that helped you, like, treat your chronic illness or help others who have suffered from it, you know, or who, who are currently suffering from it, I mean to say.
2: Yeah, and when you say my experience in OT school, do you mean like the things I actually learned in school or my experience as a patient
1: going to um, OT school? I would say the things maybe that you learned in OT school. Okay, and yeah. Also, yeah. And the things that you've experienced as a patient too. Yeah.
2: Okay. But yeah, that's what, that's what I thought you meant. But I just want to make sure before I ramble on my long answer. Okay. <laughs> um, so the things that I think are really helpful that you learn in school for chronic illness are of course, again, mental health. You have to all health is mental health. So whether or not your patient with chronic illness has a formal diagnosis of a mental health disorder, they are going to be experiencing some degree of anxiety or depression symptoms. Most, I literally don't know anyone with a chronic illness who hasn't experienced some anxiety or some depression, you know, or feelings of hopelessness, feelings of, you know, overwhelm, confusion, brain fog, um, fears of the future. Because chronic illness is your whole life, it's the rest of your life. Like, and that's just the reality. Like, no one can make you feel um, that that's not true because it's true. (laughs) And it's only untrue if there's a cure. So, being able to validate patients in, 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 the mental health sen- sense and be like, wow, that sounds really hard. It's amazing to me as a patient when I still remember a few appointments I've had where, um, and actually one was with a really wonderful physical therapist after my car accident. And when I explained my whole story to him, cause I'm kind of, I'm still kind of like, I'm such an extrovert. I just get excited when I'm with like other humans. So I'm like, blah, 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 telling my story. And I was like, it was really hard, but here I am. And he was like, no, that's really hard. He's like, you, you went through a lot. It sounds, and I literally wanted to cry. I was like, I know I did like, I literally want to cry to think about right now, but it's like, because, okay, so let's take a step back. Most people with chronic autoimmune diseases have experienced at least a three, if not four or more year delay between their first symptoms and their diagnosis. And guess what's happening during that delay, during that delay, they're being told you're not sick. You're just anxious. And you literally, many of us have experienced something that, is, that I call, I like to call accidental medical gaslighting because it's not the same as gaslighting in an abusive situation where somebody is um, on purpose trying to make you question your reality as an abuse tactic. But in the medical system, it accidentally happens because these when you don't have a diagnosis yet, but you have symptoms and your body's breaking down, the and doctors telling you you're not sick, you're just anxious, so you're you're fine, you're literally just not sick. Stop coming in, it's it is gaslighting because you know you and your heart and your body feel that you're sick, and everyone and all the doctors are like you're not sick. That is literally the definition of gaslighting is making somebody question their reality. So um so I mean for me that was I truly feel that was traumatizing to me. And I've, I've talked a lot about that in, in therapy. And so that's a whole long other story. So when somebody walks in your door, they have, you look on the chart and you see rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. But you ha- don't just think about joints, think about what that person has gone through, you know? So in, in school you learn to be empathetic and you learn, i um, in my school, we had a really great class. that so actually was a, not, I don't think an ACO requirement or requirement for all, all schools, but it was a, it was an, um, A listening class like on listening skills like communication and good listening skills so motivational interviewing is wonderful and in in school when I learned about um the one of the things that they taught at Samuel Merritt was um in the communication and listening class was like reflect back to the person not just the content of what they said but the emotion behind it so oh it sounds like you've had a lot of pain like your you know your hands have been really painful but it sounds like it's really hard because It's affecting your ability as a grandparent or as a parent you know reflecting back like it's emotionally hard so that's really helpful the other things are thinking about self-management skills which is kind of a it's a weird phrase but i don't know a better one um at usc they have a whole center called lifestyle redesign which i do think is another good way to put it but it's about um Self-management and lifestyle redesign, which is trademarked, by the way, lifestyle redesign, TM, um, is all about looking at the patient, again, from this top-down lens and empowering them with the daily living strategies that they need to function. Because it's not something like um, an acute model where... You, you know, you have a hip surgery, you come for X number of OT sessions and you rehabilitate. This is, you need to teach the patient, the tools, the self-management tools that they can then learn and use on a daily basis. So, um, because they have to manage their disease in their life, the rest of their life. So like I actually did the USC lifestyle redesign training for chronic pain and, um, they, I'm, I'm, don't, don't hold me accountable to do, saying this exactly perfectly. But, um, but it talked a lot about, yeah, teaching things like energy conservation, joint protection, and the mental health side of things. It was really wonderful um, how they talked about you know um, pain catastrophizing. And I think that was that training. I did so many trainings. Sorry, I get them all confused. But talked about just validating the patient, being there for them, really taking that holistic lens and um, helping – like again therapy is not something that you do to the client necessarily it can be if you're doing like manual therapy like you're literally doing something to them but therapy is like helping in in terms of chronic illness it needs to be looked at in my opinion my soapbox as giving people the tools and teaching them the how and the why behind them so that they can then go and learn to fly when use those tools you don't want them to be dependent on you forever because it's not sustainable, right? They, they need to go live their lives. They can't have an OT with them 24 seven. Does that make sense? So
1: yeah, no, that makes a hundred percent sense. And it's yeah. <laughs> so true. You don't want to have to, yeah, you want to be, you want them to be able to be like functionally independent enough so they can not have to rely on you. Exactly. Cause you don't want that. Cause it's like unhealthy. You know what I mean? Just have yeah. them completely rely on you. It's like, no, you want to see them get better. You want to help them out with the problems that they have. And then, you know, let them go. And if they do need help that you are there for them. And that's not like a problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, there are some OTs and PTs that have looked at more of what's called a concierge model where you kind of give them like, you know, a texting number where they can kind of, you know, instead of having this, like, this is my one hour with you or my my 30 minutes with you, this kind of empowerment throughout the day which i think is really fascinating and really really applicable for for ot um the thing that i think a student should think of or should look at though is also um sorry just so i don't forget a student or a practitioner needs to kind of understand the reimbursement systems because so most insurances will want to reimburse for rehabilitative right so you hurt yourself you want to get better but they don't always reimburse for rehabilitative or the patient education so that's why in my case, for, for many reasons, but I've structured my company where I'm just actually, it's explicitly like they sign something when they take the course that this is not the provision of official like, occupational therapy services because I don't do an individualized evaluation or treatment plan, but it is an education session that's strongly informed by my practice as an occupational therapist. So it's very kind of like, some, it sounds like semantics, but it's important for them because I'm providing it across state lines. So I'm providing... And it's like writing a book right but i'm just narrating the book because i'm giving it to them you know, over these videos and i'm having q a sessions but um it's really important to differentiate but if i could be providing that same information in the context of a one-on-one session where i've already done an evaluation but I'm, and i would customize individualize the recommendations to that person so if they're selling me okay like in my course i talk when i talk about joint protection i talk a lot about hands um because that's the most common thing with ra but if they're like actually my wrists and my elbows are really hurting as the OT one-on-one you would do more of, of that you know you would customize it whereas my course is in the educational course is more the kind of this is the basics and then if and I tell them multiple times at the course you know if you need more you can see an occupational therapist and I'm actually set up to be able to do telehealth in the state of Washington um with people one-on-one I just I'm trying to like <laughs> trying to pace myself a little bit because I'm all over you know, i'm doing videos and i'm doing i'm trying to put together podcasts and i'm putting together online courses and i'm like okay one thing at a time so but yeah understand the um the because you don't want to provide like a purely educational session and then have the insurance deny you know deny it um, and then the patient has to pay 140 or whatever it is does that make sense
1: yeah no 100 percent. like insurance companies are a pain <laughs> They really, really are, and it sucks sometimes because it's like like as you said, like sometimes you can't see your patients for longer just because of insurance purposes or it's because of the doctor because they don't want them to come further anymore you know it's just there's so many factors into it. it's like not just purely your opinion, you know you have to like, oh totally yeah, so I'm saying I totally understand that insurance and like reimbursement and all that stuff that's just it's just it's a crazy world, honestly, that whole aspect of it yeah. And, it- um, Yeah, so I remember before you were also saying that when you were explaining about like RA and your process with um, being diagnosed as well, I remember you said that, well, I remember you've been advocating more so that it's like a hidden illness and people just didn't believe you and things like that. So um, would you be able to like elaborate more so on that, like how you've been able to make that more, um, like more known, I guess you could say, not as like... Um, Yeah, and honestly... Invisible, dis- like invisible. Invisible, di- yeah. However you say it, yeah.
2: Invisible disease, invisible illness. Yeah, the people have called them invisible disease, invisible illness, invisible disability. If you look under those hashtags on Instagram, you'll and Twitter, you'll see a lot of of awareness. And honestly, I have to say, I was inspired by other patients who have been doing different um, campaigns, either individually or through like foundations and nonprofits that are targeting general awareness of invisible disabilities and um, so for me what you asked first what it means and then like how I've been helping bring awareness to it so what it means is you know you it's um, when you have a a condition that's invisible it means that people from the outside don't necessarily know what you're going through so it could be anything right from um, cancer to um, brain injury, autism, and obviously rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, you know, anything that doesn't have a really obvious physical manifestation. And there are actually, I'll kind of put privilege into here too, if that makes sense, because I know we want to talk about that. Um, there are certain privileges that you get for ha- from having an invisible illness. You get, you can quote unquote pass as able-bodied, which can give you some benefits, but at a job interview or something, you might not be perceived as quote unquote, less than, and there's a lot. So when you have a visible illness on the flip side, like let's say you're, um, you're, you have something that makes you have to be in a wheelchair, but you're cognitively 100% intact. Sometimes people make a lot of assumptions just based on the fact that you have a physical, just visible disability. They'll think, oh, well, maybe she doesn't she doesn't have a hundred percent cognition just because of the physical disability. This is particularly true when people have something like, let's say, um, they might have a cerebral palsy where that affects their motor, you know, ability for speech, and they, their speech doesn't sound typical, but their cognition is a hundred percent typical. And then people assume because of the manner in which they speak that they're mentally affected by it. And, um, so there's a lot of things that in invisible illness person will get as a quote-unquote privilege but that downside is that when you have a physical visible disability people automatically believe you like you don't necessarily you don't get a lot of people going up to people in wheelchairs being like you could really walk right like you're just trying to get attention you're you know or you're not really sick like and um, I actually just had a really nice conversation about this with a friend who one of her best friends has cerebral palsy and um, has been in a motorized wheelchair for a long time. And this friend was talking to my friend. My friend has um, ankylosing spondylitis. And my friend, it took her about 10 years, so it took her four years to get diagnosed and then six years to get on a good treatment plan. And again, those first four years, just like my first two years, you get told over and over by doctor after doctor after doctor, you're not sick, you're not sick. And even worse, you're just anxious, which means, okay, we're not really think that you, like you literally have a disorder, like you have illness, anxiety disorder, and that is causing you to feel as if you are sick and you're actually not. Like, I really wish I could have this reckoning with all the people in the past who told me I wasn't sick. Um, Cause um, anyway, I would, I would just, I think for their own information, right. If no one circles back to those doctors and tells them that they just keep thinking, Oh, I was right. I never see this girl again. You know? Um, so the, she the friend back to that story she told um my friend who has ankylosing spondylitis she's like you know she's like obviously being in a motorized wheelchair and having cerebral palsy is like really really hard she's like but i i recognize that nobody's ever questioned whether i have cerebral palsy like it's just never even been a question like and when she was little as a child she got all the services all the accommodations all and this is aside from my little soapbox about all these people needing ot who don't get it for who have arthritis but she literally was telling my friend like the one who has cp was saying i you, like i got so much more support than you did having a form of autoimmune arthritis even though it has a profound effect on her quality of life as well and her fati- her fatigue and her ability to function her ability to inhabit a body that works. She doesn't have that. That's not a privilege she has, you know. So, um, so for me, it, it's like I have, I have been really intrigued by how, the problem of how can you make people see an invisible disability, you know, and one of the ways is making it visible through art and like photography projects. So I first saw one on, on Instagram that really inspired me where it was a woman who has some an autoimmune disease and she was laying on a couch and she's really pretty and she has like a dog and i'm like i look at her on this thing she's like any other girl you know she's this young pretty girl and and then underneath on the couch on the ground are all these syringes and medication bottles and it's like her medications of the last year and it was so powerful and I was like I want to do that so uh, luckily a friend of mine is a professional photographer and I you know I paid her to do a photo shoot with me called what I called the invisible illness photo shoot that was like pictures of me with my same thing I just copied this other girl right medications around yeah, yeah and it's like I have friends who've known me literally since I was like five years old who saw me go through everything and they literally were like that really hit home. Like, I know you so well, but, like, it was, like, seeing it. You know, it's one thing to know someone has to take medications. And, like, for me, actually, I have no needle phobia. I'm just, like, so blasé about it. Like, I'll literally, like, do my medication, like, in front of, like, my son or whatever, you know, sit there and give the injection, you know, safely. But, like... (laughs) a lot of people have like they see the needles and they're like ugh, needles you know but the point is you have to make it visible somehow you can talk about it all day long but humans are a very visual species right so um another one people did that was visual but it was based on words is what you see side by side with what you don't see so what you see is me looking able-bodied and then what you don't see is then all the words around it you'll say you know fatigue anxiety medication side effects you know um and there's some heavy duty social effects I think social is the one area that people forget. So they might look at physical like pain and fatigue and they might look at psychological like mental health, but they don't necessarily remember the social. So like I actually, in my course, I'm only doing This is the second time I've done it, but each time I've done it, people have said the social week is their favorite week. So I have one week on the physical, one week on the mental and one on the social. And then I have like a week about like basic self-management, like executive functioning skills, like just how to be a patient because no one ever teaches you that. Um, so they're like the so because it's like you know you get told on a date you know you date someone let's say and then you reveal about your arthritis well on the one hand they might actually just be kind of un- unaware of what it means and they just think oh the arthritis your hand hurts you know but yeah, and then you have to explain to them what it means or you have people who pre- you know it affects everything it affects maybe you know um, i was i was talking to sarah about this but um about dating and in sexual activity so the medication you take suppresses your immune system it makes you more prone to infection which means sexually transmitted infections right so like i remember when i was in my early 20s i told the story on an instagram live but um i i um was dating someone like a very smart person like ivy league educated right this is like not rocket science but he i was like okay so have you had unprotected sex with like a past partner you know you're doing that kind of conversation and he's like well, yes, but she was on birth control. And I was like, well, congratulations for not getting someone pregnant. But, like, I'm talking about my risk of infection, not your history of getting someone pregnant or not. Like, the reason I care about this is if you've had unprotected sex with somebody who's also had unprotected sex, then I am at risk of infection. So we are not going to, you know. So it's like, but I am a kind of an unusual person in terms of confidence like I grew up in the 80s where it was all about the self-esteem movement where it was like tell your child they're special and now everyone's like growth mindset like don't tell them they're special don't tell them they're smart you know but I'm like well I'm kind of the exception to that because actually that worked really well in my favor I'm like I am special (laughs) like (laughs) I believed everything so um I don't know so I think I didn't really have a hard time personally but I am not the normal. Most people have a hard time with these conversations socially. Also, friends and family saying, "Well, you don't look sick. You don't look sick," and that's a great hashtag to follow too. You, you don't look sick um, because it's a. It can be very invalidating to hear that, right? You're like, "Great, I'm glad that true, that I don't that you know you don't think I look sick, but it doesn't mean I'm not sick." And um, a big example of this, I'll say really quick before we move on, is um, handicapped parking, and I'm no, I don't know if we're still calling it that handicap that's still kind of an outdated word but you know the parking that you can get for having a disability or disability parking I should probably call it um, people with invisible conditions all the time get nasty notes on their windshields when they use the disability parking you know and as OTS we know right you know that in terms of energy and function someone with like a thoracic spinal cord injury who's like fully upper body, like lower, let's say, lower thoracic spinal cord injury. They're in a wheelchair, and then the general public is like, oh, they're in a wheelchair. Like, they can't do anything. And, like, that person could, like, literally, like, usually, you know, like, um, they have full upper body strength, full trunk control. And, yes, it's no picnic to be in a wheelchair. Do not get me wrong. But they can function in, in, the, in the occupation of going to the grocery store. They can function way better than somebody who's having a huge flare-up of pain and fatigue from MS or from rheumatoid arthritis, but yet when they use the, the, you know, disabled parking spot, nobody blinks an eye. But when, when the person in the wheelchair does, but when the person with an invisible disability does, it's like, F you, like you're a terrible person. I followed you into the store. You can walk. Why are you using this? You know? So, um, that's another element that can be really hard, you know, strangers. But I think the more difficult is the loved ones. If someone loves you, and cares about you and they still don't get it it's really hard you know how do you explain to somebody like how do you make someone under we all know how this this is hard to explain make someone get something is is just hard so yeah long story long
1: no yeah like i didn't know about any of that like i mean i did have an idea about like the handicap stuff or um like people being harassed about things like that but i didn't know all the details because i never had anyone in my life who um, went through that or knew of anybody. So that's just an interesting perspective to put on it that actually enlightened me even. You wanted to like really like think about like, oh yeah, this actually still happens. And I wasn't aware of it because I was surrounded by it, you know?
2: Yeah, and I think, again, I want to be really careful about like, I don't, I'm not saying that it's, it's easier or harder to be, have a thoracic, lower thoracic spinal cord injury than it is to have. There are so many ways in which that's way harder, you know, access to buildings. And so I'm just saying in terms of like, the occupation of okay on a assuming it's like a flat in you know a flat parking lot to the grocery store most people would be able to you know um in, in a in that spinal cord injury situation function in that task um at I think objectively a higher or a more successful independent level of independence than somebody with a very severe flare-up of an invisible um Disability, I think, just as like a thought exercise. I think if we did that kind of activity analysis, that's what we would find. But the average person doesn't look at the world how an OT does, you know. So they make assumptions, and and a lot of people are accused of faking it. So at first, you're accused of not being sick, but then you're accused of like you're. It's like different than saying saying like the doctors in the beginning saying you don't have an illness. They're not necessarily saying you're faking it. They're just saying. Whatever you're experiencing is not a pathology. It's just whatever it is. Whereas people actively saying you literally aren't experiencing what you're saying you're experiencing when someone says they have fatigue, like you're just exaggerating or you're faking it, you know, to get sympathy or to try to get out of things. People say, Oh, well, my coworker, I saw this on Reddit the other day, on AITA thread. Um, it's like, Oh, my coworker, you know, um, or my this person in a play was, I anyway, know it doesn't matter, but they are like, this person like has a disability, but like they're just using it for their convenience and like asking for special treatment when they don't really deserve it. And it was just, it's, it's very, it's, it's something that you have to deal with that social. Social participation is in the OTPF, OT practice framework. You know, we're supposed to help people with all these things, you know, but again, the insurance companies don't always care about that stuff, sadly. So there we go. I'm back again to the reimbursement model, but you can, you know, I'm always like, have your kicking into two person. So I'm like, you know, yeah, there were times in the clinic where uh, we weren't, you know, um, in certain cases, we weren't necessarily targeting sensory as like the explicit goal. But let's say, we're doing handwriting cause that's like the motor goal. But I know deep down that the sensory is something we need to work on. We could do a handwriting activity about like understanding my sensory system or understanding my sensory tools in my toolbox. And you kill two birds with one stone, right? So maybe you could be like doing some manual therapy with someone with arthritis in a hand therapy clinic, but talking as you're doing it, talking about the social. There's ways to integrate it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how I would try to do it. I don't know if that's
0: kosher, but yeah. You know, though, Cheryl, just meeting you right now and everything that you've gone through, you've gone through a car accident. I've gone through a car accident. Um, Some people go through death, you know, like some people answer death really positive or really negatively. You also have an invisible disease and you're advocating for that, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone handles all these things differently. And one thing I appreciate about occupational therapy is the fact that it enlightens you that. You know, people are going through things that you may not know, right? So, like for instance, what you you mentioned, um, disability parking, and I think there's a show like um, "What Would You Do" on ABC, right? Yeah. And, uh, for example: They did, they did like a, a take because I think we watched it in one of my psychology classes, like back in undergrad, where a normal person gets out of the car and they parked in the disability, right? And people are looking, looking at them like they're crazy, and then they say nasty things. But in reality, Mm. here I'm thinking, well, you don't know what they're going through. You don't know what they have. And I think that's the Mm. hardest part as, I guess, a student or even, you know, a future um, practitioner that how can we make this a safe place? Because even in today's society, psychosocial aspects are not very, they're not welcome. They're not friendly. I I know know things, a lot of things are Mm. changing now, but it's still like people don't want to talk about it. Even me, like myself, right? I don't want to talk about my anxiety. I, I didn't grow up that way. It's not. It wasn't a safe mm. thing to talk about, but people like you know you as a, an OT, and then you showing that it is a safe space. I think that makes it you know a really important factor of who you are as a practitioner and what you mean to your business because you're you're not you're walking the walk, you know, like or whatever the saying is.
2: Yeah. Thank you. You just like blew my mind. I was like, thank you. Yes, I that was all strategic. No, um, but I I think you made a really good point about the mental health and. So two things I want to say about that. One is that I will be the first to admit, so I'm 38 years old, so I've gone through a lot of um, evolution over the years. I guess it's not self-evident just by my age, but meaning like I don't think 10 years ago I, I would be um, open to talking about anxiety in the way that I am now. So I will totally admit I thought it was a weakness, and I thought you should – and I come okay, – if I'm going to tie back to privilege too – I come from a, like a socioeconomic and love privileged background. Like I had amazing parents, amazing support system, very stable upbringing. So I felt like in many ways, I remember literally talking to my therapist about this. I don't deserve therapy. I don't deserve because I'm, I didn't have anything hard happen other than I kept minimizing what I had gone through with my RA. Other than RA, my life's been perfect. That's why I remember saying that exact words. But they're like, yeah, but RA is a big deal. (laughs) But I didn't validate that to myself, you know, and I think it also had to do with being told so much in my diagnostic period, you're just anxious. I was like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not just anxious. And it made me not open to actually accepting that I do have anxiety on top of an illness. Right. Um, So I think a lot of us feel like we have to have an excuse, quote unquote, an excuse to get mental health help. And I'll say it's not a coincidence that I didn't start going to therapy until my son was a year old. And I, there has been a lot of really, really good awareness about postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. And that is from a patient and a provider who went through it herself, I think, and I'm not an expert in this, but I forget her name, but I heard her on a podcast and she just bulldozed through and wrote a bunch of books and articles and did TED talks. And she was just like, we have to elevate this conversation about postpartum depression. We and they have really done an amazing job. They being all psychologists and OTs and people, I mean, think about the stigma of postpartum depression and anxiety. It has, it is still a stigma, but it's way less than it was a couple decades ago. So I was really inspired by, by that. Cause I thought to myself, yeah, you know what? I didn't feel like it was, I was valid as a patient to go get therapy until I had postpartum problems. Why is that? Why didn't I go to therapy earlier? You know? Um, and so I, if anything, when people ask me, what's your number one advice? Because they're thinking, what's your number one life hack? And I'm always, like, transitioning the conversation to um, mental health. Like, I'm like, my joke tagline for my company, in my mind, it's not my official one, is like, come for the life hacks, stay for the mental health. <laughs> but, because um, it's like, life hacks are the low-hanging fruit. It's what people think that they need, but they actually need the mental health support. Or they just don't realize... They don't always, but most of the time they think it's, you get this tough mentality with chronic illness patients where they've, they've suffered so much and figured it out on their own. They um, don't always think about getting this mental health support. So for me, it's huge to, I realize like if I don't talk about anxiety and I keep seeing it as a weakness and I'm then who, like I'm setting a bad example because now that I've gotten therapy as a patient, I know that's helped me so much and I know they could help other patients. So yeah, that really motivates me. But at first I was scared to talk about it. Um, I also have something called um, Well, technically it's called clytrophobia, which is fear of being trapped, which is goes under specific phobias kind of like spider phobia or claustrophobia. And um, I developed this after my car accident. So it kind of makes sense in a way, but even though I wasn't, I kept saying, why aren't I afraid of driving? Like why I'm not afraid of driving and I got in a car accident, but I'm afraid of being trapped. Even though I wasn't trapped in the car accident, it's like your mind always wants to make sense of something on a cognitive level, but something in my lizard brain has like attached to this concept of being trapped, whether it's trapped in an elevator or trapped in a, an airplane. That's not about the sm- space, even trapped. Like if someone trapped me in a building, like a giant building, but the door was locked. I had this kind of animal fear around that. That's really strong. And I start panicking around it so um you know I felt so again I even though I'd already gone to therapy for postpartum stuff I still felt kind of weak for this I was like oh I should like this is dumb like I know it's stupid I know you know it's like we're so hard on ourselves I'd be so compassionate to someone else but I was to myself I was like just you uh, you know, this is not going to kill you. You know, you're not in danger, but you just, just get over it, you know? And so then I'm like, well, no, I really had to go to therapy for that. I actually went to a set, a different therapist that specializes in OCD and anxiety disorders. And he's amazing. And he's the one that really pushed act based exposure therapy. So not exposure therapy necessarily to habituate yourself to the stimulus, but exposure therapy to learn to tolerate your discomfort is a really different approach and it's really scary, but you do it in a stair-step model with the support of the therapist, and it worked. It worked really well. I mean, I just went to the dentist yesterday. Did you guys see my dentist video? <laughs> Half my mouth was numb afterwards. I was like, oh, I went to the dentist, I it was great. But I mean, it actually wasn't great. I, it was really, I really, I got claustrophobic, but I sat with it, I breathed through it, and there we go. So I initially said there was two things I wanted to say. The first thing was about the postpartum. I forget what the second thing was, <laughs> sorry about um, about opening up about mental health. I just think, yeah, unless we – it's like, if not me, then who, right? Um, if not now, when, you know? Um, so, there, yeah, the more – I just think the more people being open and transparent, the better. And I will say one other thing is that there's a lot of – I mean – I don't want to be a grass is greener person but there's a i feel in general that there's a lot more awareness about depression than anxiety and this is my little theory on that my theory is that because anxiety tends to drive people towards taking action it's not as obvious that it's impair it's an impairment because you're like okay here's an example postpartum mom postpartum mom with depression who's hopeless and can't take action and it's like avolitional. it's really obvious that that person is not functioning because they're like not feeding the baby not being not changing the baby's diapers Whereas a postpartum mom with anxiety, everything that the mom might be anxiety anxious about seems quote unquote normal, right? Like the mom that's like, well, I'm anxious about my baby and like my baby might die of SIDS and like, I'm gonna, therefore I can't sleep. So it's like very much affecting their their you know um, occupation of sleep and their functional ability to sleep because they're waking up every five minutes to check on the baby and just, I just have to just make sure the baby's breathing. But that's not as obvious of an impairment, right? Because everyone feels some degree of anxiety and most people feel some degree of anxiety around those things. So I think even with chronic illness, if you, I've noticed that if you're really, really depressed, pe- that the medical team will identify that and refer you. But if you're anxious, you don't always get a referral because you're like, I'm really anxious. So I'm becoming hypervigilant. And that's like almost seen as like functional, right? Because then you're like, okay, well, then they're like taking action and they're like doing safety measures. But actually, like, my my psychiatrist taught me that like safety safety seeking is actually, it, when it's done to the extreme, is, is not functional, right? So think about someone with OCD, with containment phobia. So they're washing their hands. Everyone knows washing your hands is a good thing to do it once, right? But to do it 15 times, 20 times, then it's, it's a, um, impairment. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm a big fan of promoting awareness of anxiety specifically Um, because that is what affected my life more. And I didn't even see it because I thought it was, I kept saying, well, no, my anxiety is good. It makes me proactive. It makes me take action. Like, yeah, but at what cost? The cost is my mental health, you know?
0: So You couldn't have said that any better because like how I would see the difference is that what I, anxiety can tend to be controlled. You can do things to adapt. You can take medication, you can, do whatever you know, self-help or therapeutic exercise to control it. However, with depression, that's not always the case. It sometimes it can't be controlled. Sometimes some people do need medication. So I really I definitely
2: like- medicate. I, I am medicated for anxiety. I will say so. I'm not anti-medicate, or I'm not. I, there are there is evidence for for um, medication being effective for anxiety as well. But I, but I know what you mean. It's like yeah, yeah there's a little bit of a sense of there the. the um, yeah, depression requiring maybe more of an intensive intervention and you know it's of course suicide being aware of suicidal ideation and that being a little bit more prevalent on the depression side and the anxiety side certainly um, is, is really really important as a practitioner. I just think we need to count we need to also so it's not like a, it's not like a don't think about depression. it's like also think about depression and also think about anxiety. Yeah, would be my would be my kind of recommendation.
1: No, yeah, I think it's really awesome that you do that, the anxiety part of it as well, because, like, I feel like almost everyone can relate to that because, like you said before, everyone has at least some form of anxiety, you know, so that can go any route, basically. And, like, I can even relate to that myself, like, you know. And I know when you were talking about, like, all the phobia stuff, like, I can relate to that, too, you know. Like, everyone can relate to some aspect of whatever you're talking about related to anxiety, which is really cool. I
2: think students, you know, I actually was telling um – um. Ginny Stoffel, who is the past president of AOTA, I, I happen to know her because I was in this leadership development program that AOTA used to do. Um, but she's a wonderful person. She's a huge mental health advocate. She's the author of, of the textbook, OT, uh, mental health, the Vision for Particip- OT and Mental Health, A Vision for Participation. And I actually just emailed her to ask her, why isn't acceptance and commitment therapy in the mental health textbook? I'm literally just curious, because I never encountered it as a patient. and or as, as an OT in school, but I, is it is it because it's newer or whatever? And she was just, and I said it's so helpful for students too, because as a student, what you often want or what you often experience this, that I've seen is a lot of anxiety around like what's the right answer, you know, and anxiety around your performance as a student on tests and stuff. And um, and acceptance therapy really like anchors you again to like, the present moment. And it's really there's a self-compassion element that can be so helpful for, for ot students and so but also patients. and she's she said she's open to it being in the next um it, edition it's just it's even though it relates to ot so well and again aota now has a training on it it hasn't historically been embedded into ot programs as much as um um cbt because it's it's seen as like a it's actually really it's actually some people consider it a arm of cbt because there is a focus on behavior and there's a focus on thinking about your thoughts but there's also other people who consider it part of the third wave of psychology like the first wave being psychotherapy the second wave being cognitive behavior therapy and the third wave being mindfulness so act falls into both mindfulness and behavior based so it's kind of like a bridge between the second and the third wave in psychology anyway i'm a big psych nerd i was a psych undergrad um major so what what it, yeah sarah you're talking about psychology classes that's like it's so It's so great. And you're going to use psychology, you're going to use mental health no matter what setting, right? Because you're dealing with human beings and human beings have mental health as part of their health. So you're never going to go wrong by bumping up your understanding of mental health.
0: So true. And it changes all the time. Yeah. I was going to say one last, since we do help, we're trying to help students. What's one tip that you can give to a student right now in occupational therapy?
2: I would say focus on your own mental health and what you bring to the interactions with your potential patients um, more so maybe than or counter sorry counterbalance your focus on knowing the right answer and knowing the right treatment modalities with understanding the mental side of a therapeutic interaction because it at the end of the day it's two human beings and you have to be able to develop a therapeutic alliance whether that's with a family of a preemie baby in the NICU or somebody at hospice, end of life care, someone in a mental health or a hand therapy, you know, all health is mental health. So in, in terms of understanding how to develop your interpersonal skills um, and really listen to patients is super important. I know at least in the OTA program where I teach, the, the reason that people um, don't, don't do well on their field works at times has been more about the interpersonal skills and their non-clinical skills than the clinical skills. So, clinical skills are important. We have to give ethical, competent care, but you also have to look at what you're bringing as a person and mentally into that therapeutic interaction, and be able to to be, you know, compassionate and communicate um, well. Does that make sense? So, really work on your interpersonal communication and your I would say, sorry, I'm thinking about the voice in the back of my head of the people I, um, that run the program that I'm the adjunct in is also your professional skills. So being, you know, being on time and those really basic professional, get the easy stuff right, right. You know, but be accountable, be open to feedback, be open to learning, but um, also um, think about, yeah, think, manage your own mental approach and your own and take care of yourself, you know, and, you know, I got a C in kinesiology. Here I am today. No one cares. You know, that was the worst grade I've ever gotten. By like, a, like, I never got anything less than like a B plus before. But it's like, well, I know enough how to help people who literally no one's ever told them about joint production before. I know enough how to explain Euler drift and about how to explain how gravity is affecting us all the time. That's all my clients need me to know right now. I'm not going to become a hand therapist. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'll show you, I'm not going to jinx it, but I'm very unlikely to become a hand therapist. I don't enjoy that nitty-gritty biomechanics part of the hand. I need to know enough to help someone function in their daily life without hurting themselves more. But so, you know, if you get a C, you know, you get a C. No, it doesn't, your patients do not care. They care whether you're competent to deliver the care that they need and help them achieve the transformation that they need. So then one of the, actually the, the VP, I don't know if she, she said that she's open to people knowing this, but yeah, one of, one of the, the, the VP of um, AOTA and I were chatting cause I'm on this population health task force on, for AOTA. And um, when we were back, back in the days we could actually see people in person. That was fun. Um, I was at AOTA headquarters and we had a chat. And I was saying, I was kind of saying my little soapbox about like, I got a C in kinesiology. Look at me now. No one cares. And she's like, yeah, I f-. she practically failed one of her first courses like in her first semester. And maybe she, she even did. Fail. And she's like, I was like, Oh, do you tell people that? Cause I'm a little bit embarrassed. Sometimes again, that whole, I don't want us to be seen as weak. You know, no one wants to be seen as weak really or less than, you know, because I'm like, Oh, I should have done better. But, um, like, I literally have never worked so hard for a, a grade. In my life, I worked for that C, <laughs> so I'm actually proud of it in some ways. But, um, but she was like, "Oh yeah, I tell people all the time." She was like, "You know, I, fa- I think she failed the class, and now she's the VP of AOTA." So, again, I don't want to encourage people to fail or encourage you to aim for a C or whatever, because you know, if you're capable of getting higher, do you know, do as best that you can but know that you I think I noticed this in my program There was like three clusters of students in my master's program they were like the 22 year olds that were immediately out of undergrad And then there were the people like me who were like, this is our second career or like, you know, I had been out of school for six years and worked in the workforce and then came back to do OT. And then there was the really like the people who were in their more middle age who were maybe like a stay at home mom or something who's coming back to the workforce. And I think the 20, I noticed that the 22 year olds sometimes I'm not saying that it has to do with age, but the people who are, had no life experience outside of being a student tended to really fixate on the grades and fixate on the small picture and not like at the end of the day, why are you doing this? You're not becoming an OT to become a great OT student. You're coming in, becoming an OT to help people, human beings that need you to be competent in certain skills. So that does not, you need to get amount of grades that are possible for you to know what you need to know to be an entry level practitioner and pass the NBCOT. After that point, you're still going to be doing a lot of continuous learning and um, and about your actual setting. So um, whether or not, you know, again, whether or not I did great in kinesiology doesn't really bear on my effectiveness in helping people today. So I feel like I'm a rogue teacher. And I always tell me, honestly, what I tell my students at the OTA program, I found being a student harder than being a practitioner. Like it it was just more demanding in And it, for me personally, it was harder. I found it was, I felt like I really flourished as a practitioner. Like I could really just, um, I, I felt like I could connect to what I was learning and the purpose of it. Right. So let's say I'm in a pediatric outpatient clinic. I'm seeing kids with autism. I'm doing trainings about autism. Like it all kind of linked together to this actual, I could see who I'm helping. The end goal is to help these kids and all the learning that I was doing as a practitioner related to those kids. And that, um, like as a student, it's sometimes hard because you. it's important to learn the broad. Like, don't get me wrong. I love being a broadly trained practitioner in the same way that a lawyer has to learn all sorts of law, even if they're going to become a real estate lawyer, right? Or a doctor has to learn the whole human body, even if they're just going to be only like a gastroenterologist or like a dermatologist. But um, what I found hard about being a student is that, yeah, you don't really get to self-select into what you're interested. in. You have to learn everything. And then when you're a practitioner, you get to select what am I actually passionate about? And then everything is it um it to me felt it just feels like uh, more balanced in, in my life so i was just saying the other day oh my gosh could i do it again you know now not, my, my body is worsely affected by my rheumatoid arthritis now so i think physically it would be a lot harder but
0: <sighs> yeah you can have said it any better oh, I mean, you know laura and i we don't hide the fact that we're not straight a students but Good. we are able to share other people's experience on this podcast, and that's what we want to do. But don't don't look at me for straight A's because I'm not that girl. Like I envy people yeah. get them, but you know. I know. I, I like to.
2: I my goal is like I always joke. I was a I was a straight A minus student. That's my goal. or B plus A minus. You know, it's like I want to shoot for some degree of excellence. And yeah, the, but the, what is, it's like, again, what's the goal? What is your actual goal? If your goal in getting an A, if it's intrinsically meaningful to you, absolutely, right? If it's, if you need a scholarship, that is a functional like reason, right? But there's a lot of people who they get, they get tied up in it. Just like, it's like a self-perpetuating. Like, I need to get an A. Why? Because I need to get an A. Well, why? Because it's an A. Okay. But still, why? Like, why is it you know if you're not seeing the forest through the trees if you're so hyper fixated on the grades it really again no one is going to ask you what your grades were other than if if you passed you know we're not in a field unless you want to go on and get like a phd or otd so again you want to hedge your bets like i wouldn't want to get all c's because i did want to eventually have the freedom to potentially get like a phd or um, and, and higher doctorate, you know, level education. I'm probably not going to do that now, but cause I'm really, I love being an entrepreneur and it's just really exciting to be like able to just control my destiny a little bit more and not have to like go through someone else's curriculum. But, um, but I still like that. I, you know, you, I don't want to be like, it doesn't matter ever for anyone ever. It does matter for certain people, but if you don't know why it matters to you, you have to consider that. Why are you stressing yourself out if it doesn't actually matter?
0: Hey, everyone. If you liked today's episode, please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on our weekly chats. You can also find us on Instagram at
1: themodernot_podcast. underscore podcast. There will be new episodes released every Friday, so feel free to reach out to us. We would love to connect with you.